Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models. I'm your host, Matt Kwan, and this is a second part episode with Sergeant Major Sebastian Lavois. Seb, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. And I appreciate all of your all of the listeners. Thank you to the patrons. And today we wanted to have uh, another discussion. Again, Sebastian is uh, in law enforcement and he has, I believe, 20 years in law enforcement, if not more. this year, yeah. And is also a BJJ brown belt. He's a repeated guest on the podcast. And today we wanted to have an open discussion about self-defense, specifically some of the things that somebody who has the experience in martial arts and law enforcement how that pertains to self-defense in different scenarios. So I know we kind of, we have an idea of where we're going to go with this episode, possibly touch on a few different scenarios, but this is definitely a topic that Seb has experience in. So we're just going to pick his brain, talk about, you know, some things that you can look for, uh, and I guess discuss different scenarios. So anything you want to start with Seb before we, before I start shooting questions at you? Bring it on. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I'm walking down the street (laughs) and, uh, you know, let's say I don't have any martial arts experience. I'm just a, and I'm a muggle and, (laughs) and I don't know really much to defend myself. What are some things that you would look for, uh, in terms of just being aware of my surroundings? If I feel like maybe someone is following me, sort of trying to paint a picture here where maybe someone's let's say 20 paces behind me. And I, I don't know if they're dangerous. Maybe I don't even know they're there. What are some things that you would look for or recommend that somebody looks for if they're walking down the street by themselves? Wow. I feel like we can open a major Pandora's box of, uh, of all kinds of possibilities here. But really what we're talking about is situational awareness, right? And I've said this over and over again, and I'm sure some people are sick of hearing it, but the best fight we can get into is the fight we don't get into and, and the attack that we don't have to get out of. It's very interesting. If you have somebody 20 paces behind you and you don't know, you're doing something wrong. This could be being in your phone. It could be being overly engaged from a cerebral standpoint. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking about whatever the case may be, but it takes your attention away from what you are actually doing. And I mean, headphones, yeah, headphones would be a problem. Um, But I mean, you know, aside from the self-defense piece, you also have the overall situational awareness piece, which is also critical. I mean, you could get hit by a car, you know, there are other things could happen as a result of not having that situational awareness. So the question becomes, how many things are actually impeding uh, me from paying attention? basically, right? So I would say that in most 
assault and we're talking about not targeted targeted assault because targeted assault are obviously they're going to keep coming because you are either living a lifestyle that's conducive to getting targeted for a reason or somebody you know has it out for you in which case you're actually in some instances it's better that you know because the evil you know is better than the evil you don't know a random attack is very very hard to predict but when you're just going about your business trying to go to the mall, go to work, walk in between, go for a run on a trail or whatever the case may be, you cannot in this day and age not be paying attention Mm -hmm. and be completely engaged mentally and have your senses all focused on one area because you're going to you're going to pay for that. Right. And I I think just being living in Western Canada, you know, very generally a very safe place, very forgiving place. This just living in such a high trust society, I think a lot of people become complacent when it when it comes time for them to commute to and from work or, you know, they're on the what we call the sky train or public transit or whatever. And it becomes so easy to just like occupy your mind, like you mentioned, the example being on your phone or having music and kind of disengaging yourself from the your surroundings as you're on your daily commutes and and running daily errands and things like that. Would you have like a rule where it's like, okay, every few seconds, I'm going to look up and sort of like do a full 360 and assess everything. At what point do people, are people like too complacent? You know, how can, how can you sort of remind yourself to, to stay aware, especially I guess when the dark comes out, right? Things I think generally go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, man, it's, it's a very fine balance because, you know, we live in a world where we're constantly overstimulated, constantly. And I mean, from a, from a cerebral standpoint, there's constantly things going in front of our eyes. We, we hear things all the time. The radio is going, the podcasts are going, people are flying here and there and everywhere. Everybody's in a rush and everything. So what ends up happening is ultimately, Humans have to take that downtime, otherwise risk being overstimulated and it creates issues like it gets us exhausted and it prevents you from getting home and be present with the family because you need an escape and and we do. So the idea is not to make this walking around like you're 007 type deal, but it's just uh, little changes that you can implement in your daily routine that just becomes that it just becomes routine and it's just when i go on a trail run my music is not as loud as i would like it to be so that i can hear you know stuff sneak sneaking up on me and this may not be humans like it could be other things you know mm-hmm. here in bc but also just being aware of the reality and acknowledging that this can happen and i can tell you from experience there is a lot more people out there that you would think that got hurt uh, not paying attention. I think as a society, we tend to judge how much evil or how much wrong or how much critical events are occurring in, in society based on what we see in the newspaper. Well, I can tell you that I've been on thousands of operations that the newspaper has never spoken about, right? So does that mean I wasn't involved? And does that mean that people are not getting hurt? when they're walking around or being murdered or attacked or, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever the case may be. And we know this for a fact. It happens fairly regularly and it happens for random reasons. It just doesn't happen only to targeted people. So once we acknowledge that, it's kind of like acknowledging that cancer can hit us. So if cancer does hit you, you're not like, oh my God, I'm shocked. Why are you though? One out of three people are getting cancer. So why are you shocked that you should have been prepared for that, right? Not prepared for the, the ramifications or the consequences, but certainly prepared that it can hit you. And, uh, and I think denial is, is the enemy, right? Yeah. Or in this case, <clears throat> I guess it would be just becoming 
overly complacent or just thinking that nothing can ever happen to you when you're walking down the street. But the fact of the matter is kind of anything can happen to you, especially if especially if your commute involves you going through alleys or sketchy areas or if it is, uh, you know, in times where there's not a lot of people around in, late in the evening, like I mentioned, if I was a let's say I'm a a small person, even like a, a female, you know, just over 100 pounds and I'm walking to and from work, whatever, what, what sort of tips would you give me to be aware of of things going on around me so that I can at least maybe not prevent a situation, but at least I will be more prepared should a situation happen or possibly prevent a situation. Yeah, I see. And this is kind of where this can get very, uh, very convoluted because I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll qualify this with an example. And if I forget the answer, just let me know because I sometimes do that. <laughs> so basically think of it this way. My girlfriend is a, is a strong independent. She's a cop. She's a strong independent woman that does jiu-jitsu. She is, you know, 160 pounds of muscle. She can fight all this stuff. She is very confident in her skills and what she can do. And she should because she has the tools. We are having this conversation when she's got a little bit and, she, you know, she won't mind me saying this, but she has a little bit of OCD and she needs everything to be really clean and really organized. So it's 830 at night. She lives in an apartment building. There is a common uh, room that has the garbage disposal, right? So now it's 8.30. It's the winter. It's dark. There's, you know, hardly anybody walking around the building. And she has a bag the size of a purse with something in there that doesn't stink, doesn't, you know, create any issues for her apartment. So what does she do? She grabs it and she's like, oh, I'll be right back. I'm just going to the uh, the garbage room, which is adjacent to the parking lot, which is accessible by whoever, right? So to me, it, it's kind of like having that conversation. Hey, hon, look, like, do you need to go right now? Is this bag, does this bag take precedent over your safety, right? Because if you go in there on the first floor by yourself and two guys or whatever, people enter the, the, the underground and it becomes a sort of a crime of opportunity. They see an, an attractive woman down there by herself, all this stuff. Now you end up in a fight for your life. Maybe you win. Maybe you don't. Or maybe you're scarred forever. So when you look at the risk assessment on this, how important was was it to bring that bag down mm -hmm. at this time? Could you have done it in the morning when there's a lot of people around? Mm -hmm. And, and the answer is, I have no reason to go down there right now. So it's kind of the same. If you are a person that works in a certain area and uh, and you have to, to walk to your home or whatever the case may be, is there and have you exhausted every means necessary to try to find alternative arrangements before we even talk about defending ourselves? Like, is this a good, you know, mm -hmm. a good place to be uh, walking at night? So, for example, if you like I mentioned, if your commute involves you cutting through a crackhead alley where people are taking shits and do, shooting up needles and that saves you five minutes when you could just go around and take a main route, makes more sense to take that extra five minutes and sort of be more visible in the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. Everything comes down to a personal risk assessment and that risk assessment cannot be based on convenience. It has to be based on what am I willing to risk and what are the gains, 
right? So yes, you can be capable of defending yourself. And yes, you can be heads up and, and scan, you know, everywhere you go and, and be very aware when people are approaching and change street sides when somebody is behind you and, you know, maybe use some ruse get into a, I don't know, a pizza shop or pretending to be doing something. There's a variety of different things, but all those things happen after you've already found yourself in a bit of a predicament, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still playing catch up. Yeah. This is prevention is the best cure essentially is like, so, so when you're planning out your route, you're assuming something could happen. So it's better to be overly cautious than to be under cautious and then try and solve a situation once it's already happened. Yeah, it absolutely is. So this can go on forever. I mean, there are ways to approach your your car when it's parked at the mall, you know, and there's ways to do it tactically so that you're cutting angles and you can actually see if anybody's either in your car or hidden on the side or trying to ambush you from the other side. If there's an, another car next to it and there's some weirdness there and you can see it and all this good stuff. But the question is, is where's that car parked in the first place? Well, you parked it at the end of the parking lot by itself. And now you have to walk to it and you have no idea what's there. Maybe there was a safer area to park it, mm. and, but it just was like, say, an extra five minute wait, as you mentioned, Matt. And uh, and you decided not to because it just was inconvenient. But now you come out a little bit later than expected. It's a little bit dark. And, you know, it's just again, it's how to prevent things versus how to fix them once they happen. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend and again, I don't want to get you in trouble, but do you recommend that people carry some sort of, I don't want to say weapon, but some sort of device to keep them safer, whether it be pepper spray or taser or anything like that? The answer is yes, it would be amazing. But the, the problem is, is that those items are all prohibited for the most part. Here. Pepper spray is prohibited? Yeah. Yes. So bear spray isn't, but bear spray is for bears. Like if, if you have bear spray yeah. in your purse and you're going to Roxy, you know, it becomes possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose. So, I mean, I'm not going to even launch into that, but there's a variety of different other things that, that you may have already in your possession that evidently could be used as a defensive tool if you needed, yeah. right? If you needed yeah. to save your life. And I think that's an accepted fact. It's very interesting because each cities and countries have different laws when it comes to civilians defending themselves, but most of which are fairly consistent. If you find yourself in some serious uh, risk of harm, like you are, you know, allowed to defend yourself. Now the question, not the question, but if you live somewhere where that isn't the case, or if you live somewhere where maybe they have more restrictive laws with respect to how civilians are supposed to act, then you have to ask yourself the question, how much risk am I in and what is worse? Yeah. Am I going to get in trouble or am I going to die? If if I'm I mean, I, I don't think it really matters gender, but let's say I'm a woman and I have a pepper spray. Someone's trying to physically control me and I use pepper spray. Can I get in shit for that? Yes, you could. In theory. I mean, theoretically, you could. Will yeah. you? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it depends sort of <laughs> if you can prove self-defense. Well, yeah. uh, you mentioned something before we recorded that I had actually never heard of. What did you call it? The ghost lover tactic? Is yeah, that I, it's kind of something that I made up when I was teaching women's self-defense classes. Why don't you explain what that is? Yeah. And it's, not, it's, it's not as sexy as it sounds, though. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. Certainly not. And also, I mean, it's, you know, I'm acting on the premise that evidently most people are good. And so... A lot of this is open source material and you can go and Google it and you and you see certain things. This specific thing isn't. But I mean, there are tactics that are very similar 
uh, that can be found. And ultimately, nothing's a secret nowadays with the information, with the way the information is. But in essence, what it is, is if somebody, they either fail to recognize or just simply couldn't avoid the fact of putting them, themselves at some risk, taking a walk at night or whatever the case may be, coming back from work uh, or going somewhere, taking a bus, whatever it is, the biggest issue is being alone, right? So if you can do it in pairs or, or in a trio, that's even better. But if you can't and you find yourself in a position where somebody is potentially following you or you're getting the feeling that somebody is potentially following you, there's a few things I would look at before doing the ghost tactics. But for example, as soon as a person gets behind you, having somebody behind you is very unsettling. And guys, you know, I tell the guys that all the time and I'm glad we, I'm glad this was brought up. I tell guys that all the time. Guys also good guys, good guys that are protectors and that care for women should know that it's very, very unsettling for women when guys are walking behind them. Mm -hmm. So that to me as a guy, I'm very conscious of that. And especially the way I look, you know, I got tattoos on my hands, all this stuff. I get mistaken for somebody that's not so good all the time. So maybe I switch side as a guy. Yeah, I'm going to switch side just so she doesn't feel threatened, right? Mm -hmm. And I may even do that with another guy. I'm not making it sound like women are delicate flowers. Like a lot of them are, are very, very capable, especially some of your listeners. Uh, dealing with that so but just something to keep in mind for you know guys in general just just know that what we do has an impact on people and can be perceived as a threat even if we're not so anyways the ghost tactics basically is say i'm a woman i approach my bus stop and somebody's behind me that person is closing the gap i'm trying to speed up a bit but it's not working they're catching up I may grab my cell phone and just put it in my ear and pretend that I'm speaking to someone and say, hey, um, oh, yeah, you must be right here, you know, because I, I can't see you, but you must be really close. OK, I'll just wait for you on the corner or whatever. Oh, or I think I see you, you know, some to indicate that somebody's in the area actively looking for you. Mm -hmm. And so now the person have two choices and it's called hardening the target, right? You're making the target harder. He just has to turn around and go to somebody else. Why would he even risk that? So whether or not it's a bluff, whether or not he knows it is or he thinks it is, can he prove it? And if he can't prove it, what's for him to gain? He either doesn't believe it and ends up actually being busted or he believes it and goes. Right. So it's a win win either way. So the question is, when do you do that? How do you do it? And how credible are you? So you need to have obviously some sort of rehearsal, like you need to have done that. You need to have practiced it. You need to, you need to be natural when you do it and you need to be somewhat of an actor, right? Mm -hmm. But once it happens, next thing you know, oh, the person is now slowed down and you know, kind of thing. But then this is only buying you some time. If you continue walking on the same straight line for another two kilometers and that person hasn't come to you, you are now exposed your tactics. So there has to be a follow up to that, which is either a change of direction and entering a store or whatever the case may be mm -hmm. and seek some help. It only going to buy you some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what it is. That, that's a really, really cool tactic. I never even thought of something like that before. I thought about things like crossing the street, going into stores. I mean, the thing is, is it's not always available, right? Depending on where you are. And I think that's why uh, the first Part of the discussion when we talked about planning your route where you can take your risk versus reward and sort of making it things as safe as possible, that prevention and just not putting yourself into those positions is, you know, it pays off in the long run. You know, one of, one of our questions that I got was like, at what point when you're on the street, let's say, do you know when a verbal confrontation 
needs to become physical. I don't mean like, when does it become physical? I mean, like, when does it become a necessity to start defending yourself in a physical manner? Maybe what are some of the things that you would look for in an aggressor uh, in terms of their body language, their speech, whatever, their, their demeanor? Like, what what do you look for where you where things start going off in your mind? where like, OK, things are about to get physical here. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, we are just going to scratch the surface of this because threat cues are, you know, everywhere and the interpretation of same as well as it differs from everybody, depending on everybody's skill set. So everybody's risk assessment is an individual endeavor and something that can be perceived as extremely egregious for someone, maybe nothing for you as a, an experienced black belt. And, and, you know, so I think there are the constant for one, we need to understand that fighting on the streets hardly happens now. Like people generally don't fight on the streets. They stab on the street. Right. So if people are scared, we live in, we live in a, you know, in a world where everybody wants instant gratification and nobody is willing to put in the work. And so we're, we're having some major issues with, you know, back in the days, it was like, Hey man, let's, uh, let's meet, you know, behind the, the school or whatever at four o'clock and let's have a dust up. And it was a fair dust up and somebody got the, you know, the wrong, it was on the wrong side of it and it was all over. And then they were friends. Like that doesn't happen anymore. Now we're mm-hmm. looking at swarming. We're looking at stabbing. Yeah. We're looking at so so the risk is extremely elevated to get into any sort of altercation on the ground. But there are things. So I'm going to talk to the very, very self-evident an ambush. Like you get jumped. Like this is not like I've seen anything coming. There were threat cues or anything like that. I walked by this alley. Two guys saw me. Next thing I know, they're on my back type deal. Right. That's, I mean, the worst case scenario. You are getting jumped by unknown aggressors for unknown reason. You haven't seen him coming and now you're fighting for your life. But long before that, there is, you know, other, other issues. So somebody is say following. So you, you, you switch lane. You did what you had to do and you, you find yourself in a scenario where maybe that person even comes to you and says, Hey, you know, can I get some change? And again, there's a lot of, you know, really good homeless people out there. Like there's veterans in there and all like, I'm not pinning this on all homeless people by any means, but, uh, but I think it's important. Like, you know, somebody will find an excuse to come to you. And mm-hmm. this happens a lot at gas station. You know, you're at the gas station, you're not, and somebody comes to you and they get into your bubble. Yeah. So, and this happens in Vancouver so regularly when you're walking down the street, there is a huge homeless population here. So you're always getting it panhandled and a lot of them are pretty aggressive too and they can follow you and stuff like that. Yeah. So let's talk about one of the common sort of fault that I see when people are being approached by someone who may, you know, come out strong and maybe even in an unsettling matter for some people. And oftentimes what will happen is the defensive mechanisms kick, kick in and now it's like an aggression return. So they're coming to me. I don't like the way they approached me or I got scared and now I'm being aggressive back. So now we're looking at potentially escalating something that had we taken a breath and and had a regular conversation may have not escalated. Some of the things that we want to be looking for is for them to be getting in our bubbles. And I'm not going to, I just disclaimed this, I'm not going to get in every tactical principles. Those are actually open source and you guys can research those, but we can talk, certainly talk about some of them uh, that are very, very common. And having somebody enter your bubble where you no longer have a reactionary gap, you can't see what kind of threat they are presented what their hands, you know, not watching their hands. So you don't know what they're carrying. You don't know if there's anything in their waistband. You don't know what state of mind they're in. And now if they do something quickly, you have 
very short period of time to make up your mind on on how dangerous this is and what you need to do about it. So uh, just define, like when you say bubble, I mean, we all kind of know what personal bubble means, but like how much space are you, would you consider your bubble? Like four feet ahead of you, five feet ahead of you, more? Well, in theory right now with COVID restrictions, actually, I, I do think that the two, three sort of meters, I mean, the further, the better. If you can have a conversation where you're actually projecting your voice without being aggressive, mm-hmm. but you're actually far enough in yeah. the person. And if the person start walking towards you, you can take steps back. And eventually you may have to say, hey, sir, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable. Like, I don't really know you and I don't know if you're dangerous. Yeah. I'd appreciate it if you just kind of stayed there. And I, I like I like how you say projecting your voice, because that's something that's not even physical, nor is it, you know, it's not uh, visible either. It's a it's a projection of voice, which could definitely people you can tell by how they speak, whether they're confident in a situation, whether they feel threatened in a situation. That was one of the main criticisms when I when I recorded my instructional is, is Rob and Stefan were like, dude, like you need to project your voice. You just don't sound confident. It's not it's not working out right now. So it, and, and then it, that actually really helped me build as an instructor, not even meaning to go down on a rabbit hole, but it makes sense. Like if someone is approaching you and you say, hey, and you say right now, like I'm showing you that that I'm strong in this situation, that I'm not going to just submit and that I'm aware of my own physical well-being just by using your voice. That's a good way of communicating without getting physical. Yeah, really what it's called is it's called controlled aggression, right? Controlled aggression makes you sound more confident. Out of control aggression make, make you sound scared. So it's a very fine line. That's why when either police or military or whoever needs to be given commands, the best way to do it is to be strong and assertive and know what you are asking and be controlled in your speech, but be very, very clear. Look, I see the weapon on your waistband. If you go for it, you will get shot. Do you understand me? Yes. Whatever you do, don't make a move for that weapon. Right? Versus, I see the gun. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and all that says is, is, I'm scared. I'm scared. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, so there is a way to project your voice so that you can have that confident appearance, but you can also be, ex- and you should be extremely respectful so that you're not, enticing violence right by escalating basically yeah yeah so then we've spoken about people getting into your bubble so maybe coming too close for comfort and when i say too close it should be a lot less close than what most people are comfortable with yeah two arms length type deal three ideally four ideally i mean if i can have that conversation with a person i don't know from seven eight ten feet away why wouldn't i yeah, if they're if they're an arm's length away, that's it's very close. That's like really close. That's There's, sucker that's like, punch range. Yeah, that's yeah. like sucker punch. That's double leg takedown range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the closer that the aggressor is to you, the less time you have to make reactions. So it's always good to make space. Yeah, and it goes beyond that. Is not only is it impeding your reaction time, but it's actually impeding the quality of your reaction because it prevents you from assessing what you have accurately. So. It goes beyond just, am I going to react in time? It's, am I going to react in time and in a proper fashion for what I have, what I'm faced with? So maintaining that gap with somebody you don't know is is absolutely critical. And the longer, the better. Don't worry so much about the their eyes and their face and what they look like. Worry about their hands. What do they have in there? Mm. Is there anything in there that can, that can hurt me? Because I tell you right now, if somebody walks towards me at the gas station and I'm in my civilians, like I'm not carrying or anything like that, but I've just 
being me filling my car up and I, I observe the hands and I see a blade in there, we're not having this conversation. Like I will be creating a, a substantial gap long before that person even gets close to me type deal or create an angle or, or whatever the case may be. And I guess, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the boss Rudin self-defense instructions where he said, use the ambiance. I think he's in like a red Robins or an Applebee's or something. He picks up a chair. So I guess you would be looking in your environment. Like what can I use to make distance right now? Maybe it's a car door. Maybe it's a, I don't know, a chair. Maybe it's garbage can something like that you that's when you're so if you see a weapon you need to know hey there's a different level of danger because you've identified a weapon and you know that every step that they take that closes the gap they have a better chance of using that weapon on you yeah for sure just make sure it's not the chef somewhere in a restaurant and <laughs> but no in all, in all seriousness though you know you're bringing up a very good point matt where are my positions of cover or concealment? Like where is there something that I could use to actually place in between myself and the aggressor if needed? You see video of people being run after and running around circle in a car mm. with somebody chasing them with, with a weapon and doing that successfully for two or three laps until they actually take a, a course of action towards another direction and, and having some success with that. But I can tell you, if you stay, if you stand firm and stay in the open, uh, good luck. Uh, mm -hmm. now you're going to find, you're going to fight somebody close range with a, with an edged weapon and you're probably not prepared for that. So, you know, having that general awareness, like, okay, this guy has something in his hands. I have the pumps or my car. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is not only create some distance and maintain it, I'm going to create an angle and I'm also going to use my car as a cover or as a cover, a piece of concealment so that, I mean, it's cover against a blade, but if it was a, evidently a, a pistol, it wouldn't be cover. It would simply be yeah. something between, right? I guess, I guess if it's a pistol, it's like the, now <laughs> it kind of works almost in reverse. Whereas if there's more of a, more of a gap in between, it becomes more dangerous it's assuming there's no obstruction yeah so so there certainly is a time where going forward and into the threat is is the way to go but i mean still dicey yeah it's <laughs> i mean that's all bets are off at that time right but but mm -hmm. you're absolutely right if i turn my back and start running away from somebody with a pistol yeah. when they were just say three feet away from me I'm going to basically get shot in the back running away yeah. or I'm going to risk getting control on that on that weapon and potentially retrieve it or turn mm -hmm. it against, you know, type deal. If someone's holding a gun to you three feet away and they're saying, give me your wallet right now, do you just give them the wallet? Yes. Yeah. What if you have your wife with you or your kid with you and maybe they're being a little bit more aggressive or you, you're getting signs that, okay, like, I don't think I can just give them my wallet this time. I, I'm feeling like that I need to actually do something. Or I guess maybe if you're with your loved ones, you would try to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. So again, this comes down to having those, those mental rehearsals, right? Like, so you have to have given this some thoughts, but I tell you right now, I'm going to do everything in my power. And I know that most people with kids would do the same to bring the threat away from the rest of your family, right? And mm -hmm. that's what I would do. So here's what you could do. You could say something along the lines of, Hey man, I am absolutely not willing to die over a wallet. I would give you everything I have. Unfortunately, I only use debit. So here's what we're going to do. If you're okay with that, 
let's go to the bank machine on the corner or whatever, and I will retrieve everything I have and give it to you. Like, I swear to God, I'm not going to try anything, you know, and you can, you can get your acting chops in there. And in the back of your mind, you know, that if he makes a tactical mistake on the way, on the way there, you know, you may capitalize on that or take the opportunity. But if he doesn't, and, and you end up bringing the fight away from your family, then that's when that conversation, like, don't let your wife wait there for you to come right. back. Like, go to the police station, like, do something, you know, like. Yeah. What kind of tactical mistake in that scenario? Very interesting. What kind of what kind of tactical mistake would you be looking for? Like maybe they're looking in another direction. Maybe you, they're a little bit closer to you than they than is ideal for using a pistol and you can sort of get out of the line of fire. What is what what would you look for? I don't know about getting out of the line of fire so much as as getting control of that weapon. I mean, that's a constant. People like to have close contact. They feel, you know, they feel empowered by that. I mean, I'm talking about untrained people are going to try to uh, and this is not a always or never but it happens a lot where they will try to use that weapon to intimidate and for them it's very empowering to do it close range or if there is if you have a skill set that's going to and again I, I you know I disclaim that if you don't have the skill set those are opportunities that may not be for you mm. uh, unless you know for a fact that you are going to get shot or, or killed or you know, maimed. But if you are, and if you have that awareness and the person gets too close or they look left when they should have been looking right and the pistol is, you know, I will be paying attention. It's kind of like jujitsu and to make a correlation, like just imagine you have a really strong, solid person on your side control. And sometimes the best thing to do is to set up your knee in that right position, set up your frames in the right position and wait until they try to make their position better. And in doing so, they do, uh, they make a tactical mistake and you capitalize on the next thing you know, you have a knee in there. Next thing you know, you have a sweep, right? Well, it's the same. Humans can get really, really good at picking up when things aren't quite right. It could be him dropping, dropping the pistol. It could be him putting it away because a cop car is going by, like whatever the case may be. And then in that case, what double egg? <laughs> what are you <laughs> like? Let's say that happens. Let's say, let's say that we've gone through this scenario. We're now at a bank machine that's on the corner. There's not a lot of people around. Let's say there's nobody around. Okay. But, but a cop car drives by and this person still has their pistol in their hand, but they put it in their pocket. What do you do? Well, it depends. It depends on the position of the car. And like the car is driving right by you guys, but you are three feet away, let's say. From from bad guy? Yeah, from bad guy. From me, he's probably at closing the gap and he's going down, right? And and when you say he's going down, are you trying to isolate his pistol hand or are you double legging him into the ground? Well, it depends. Like, what is he? Does he have it in his hands or it's in his pocket? It's in his hand in his pocket. Well, that's it depends. Like, I mean, we can we can what if these scenarios to to death it, it all depends like you know if i feel like he has his i've seen him because he had his finger on the trigger the entire time and he was kind of i mean that could be a good thing too you you know <laughs> you get the two arms together and he ends, he ends up uh, shooting his junk but i mean is there <laughs> other things is there other things that we could be doing right like we're yeah. talking about absolute extreme scenario but when the police rolls by depending on his reaction you may be waving and yelling like i don't know right yeah. like you may again you want to make sure that you're in a position that if you do so yeah. The car just doesn't keep going. Yeah. And Cause now, then you're fucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the guy's just gonna, so I mean, could I, waste I, you. I think we could, we could probably exemplify scenarios all day, but yeah. it's a decision that's gonna have to be, it, it'll be a game time decision. 
the 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 goalpost around how you're going to react to certain scenarios has to be rehearsed. So you have to have a general understanding of what you are trying to achieve and what is the sort of the the win conditions on that. But aside from that, we can't micromanage every every different situation because every single situation will mm-hmm. be absolutely different. But it also has to do with the ability to the person to whom this happened to make a move that's comfortable for them. And when I say comfortable, I, I evidently don't mean comfortable. I mean, as comfortable as it will be based on the totality of their circumstances. Because obviously scenarios are infinite and what ifs can just go on forever, much like in jujitsu. How can you improve your ability to make those game time decisions when you really don't know what the outcome is going to be? You, you know, you, you know that you don't want there to be a conflict, but you also realize that it's possible there could be a conflict. How can you be more receptive in the moment and make accurate decisions given what's in front of you? Is there any way to train that? Is it just literally study, like thinking about it or just you know, mentally rehearsing it? Stress inoculate training? Is there something like that? Yes, to all the above, right? So again, the danger with this is to say, well, yeah, I mean, if you did visualization, scenario-based training, which increases your reaction time, your ability to process, your ability to respond, but also increases your stress inoculation. You know, if you're an MMA fighter that has been through some live fight, you have an advantage. If you want to do that, you can. Uh, There's a variety of things that, that could be done and that would make things better. The downside of it is when does Steve or you use another name because he's not here, but when does, <laughs> no, 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 actually, I like- actually let's use Steve. Yeah. When does, <laughs> when does Steve, the librarian trains for close quarter combat in case he gets jump at the, at the gas station, you know, like, and what are the chances of that happening? And, and how, how much is that affecting his personal life in doing that? And what is the, other side to this. So I think it's just, you just have as a, as a human being, you just have to kind of strike a balance on what you are prepared to put time into preparing for. And really when it comes down to it, for the majority of your listeners, they're already doing close quarter combat, right? So yeah, there, there are things that you can do, like you can have rubber knives and you can go by the mats and say, Hey, today we're going to do some nogi and there might be a knife appearing somewhere in there, you know? So now you're going to be forced to prevent the thrust. You're going to have to create an angle and grab that wrist and control the weapon. That's going to be become your, you know, your entire goal in life. So you can do those things. You can also run scenarios through with your family. And I did that with mine all the time. I did that with the girls. I did that with the girlfriend. If I tell you, I want you to go now, like we're not having an argument. Like mm-hmm. I have perceived something that's extremely critical. That's potentially life altering or life ending. And I want you to leave and go as far away as you can and, and get some help. But mm. right now is not the time to argue so that the two of us fall victim to whatever predicament we're in. Right. right. That's I, I like uh, the rehearsal idea, especially as a father. And now I have uh, a lot of the times my wife, but again, two kids sometimes with me. The idea of rehearsing things with them is is very appealing to me should something happen. So you think that it's very uh, it's a good idea to discuss with your kids, you know, OK, we're going out to the Canucks game tonight. Maybe maybe you don't have the discussion every night, but like. You know, at some point during their upbringing, you say, hey, you know, if we're out and about and something happens, uh, here's what I want you to do. You think that that's a very strong that's something that every parent should do. 
because you also don't want to scare the shit out of them. But it, 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 it is important that should something happen, that they know that that it's possible because not everybody's friendly and that there's a kind of a universal game plan, a family game plan. This is such a, an interesting and contentious question, really, because you have the people that are consistently trying to shelter their kids from the ugly in this world, which oftentimes lead to them, you know, going about their business oblivious. And when they actually are faced with something truly ugly, it becomes hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. Then you have those who actually are honest with their kids and the kids develop some sort of anxiety over what it is that could and, sh and, and might happen and these things. So, you know, again, in the spirit of the person I am, I'm always somewhere in the middle, right? So I would say that if your kids are very young, you could make this a game. Look, I'm going to say three, two, one, go. And you find a hiding spot right here. You go behind a tree, you do this, you do that, or you yell or whatever the case may be. So it could be a game initially. When they're old enough to process and understand information, you can have that conversation that says, look, I know that you know that there are bad people around. There are, right? And I, as your dad, will do everything I can to protect you. But we need to have a plan, right? So with my girls, it's not a problem. I've done that. But it's interesting because my oldest is actually super conscious of this. My youngest is very good too. Like they can sense danger. They know where it comes from. And, and they also understand the premise of how to... Um, self-defend basically uh, to an extent to which, you know, a 14 and a 12 year old could, but my youngest actually has some anxiety, right? And, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror very often saying, Hey, have I created that? Right. Because I've often, I've often said to them things that just came out of my mouth, right? And I was in a, immersed in a world where I was very privy to the absolute ugliest. So anyways, I didn't go into details and, and sort of gruesome details or showed them pictures or whatever, but I've always been very open. There's a ton of bad people out there. They will try to hurt you and that kind of stuff. So I may have gone, you know, a little bit over the line and my youngest one reacted a little bit adversely. Now she is, we're regaining control of that and everything. But so it's a very, very fine line. Mm -hmm. You can make it a game and eventually have a conversation, but it certainly doesn't have, it shouldn't be all the time or else you can create some. And I'm not a child psychologist by any, by any, uh, you know, stretch of the imagination, but I think it's pretty reasonable, right? I, I like what you're saying there, how, you know, making it a game so that they're still drilling the skill of like, okay, three, two, one, go. They have sort of an idea of I need to hide or I need to find a spot or, or just get away from dad at this moment because, you know, you don't want them to be a them to be vulnerable during a situation. But you're not traumatizing them by saying, hey, if a guy comes up with a knife or something and then, holy shit, someone could do that to my dad. Right. But they're still getting the reps. They're still thinking about, OK, in kind of a game way. And still getting that repetition. Then when they get older, actually having a conversation like tying it together, like, OK, should something happen? This is something we should do. I want to discuss home self-defense in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you a quick question. Would you treat like, let's say a sketchy guy in an alley. Would you treat a knife the same way you would treat the threat of a an infected needle? Would it be the same? Like if the guy's like, hey, I got a knife or if he said, hey, I got AIDS and I got a needle. Would there be a difference in your approach? Would you just try and run away as fast as you can? Like what is going through your mind 
when comparing those two weapons? Yeah, I mean, professionally, there wouldn't be much of a difference. They both create a, a threat of death of grievous bodily harm, like something that's extremely egregious and extremely serious. So if I was to assess that with a professional setting, and this is only one piece of the pie, there's what is the totality of the circumstances there? Like, where am I? What's the lighting conditions? What's the What kind of verbiage is he using? Is the person high? Are they mentally, like, who and, and where am I? What are my skill set? The list just goes on and on and on. Like, what is the context? What is the environment? What are my my escape routes? All these other things. So there's a lot. There's a lot to process there. But essentially, no, it would be very similar. It would be. It would be the same. The range is the same. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> The only caveat is, A, we know infection rates being very low with needles unless there's actually, like, stuff in there that actually is being injected in you. Right. When a knife, you know, a six-inch blade in your throat is going to be immediately deadly type deal, right? So, mm. so there, but it doesn't change anything. I mean, I wouldn't want any part of those two scenarios if I, if I could help it. Would sprinting away be your main mindset should something like that happen it all depends it all depends i mean i always i i've said before if you have a really really fast 400 meters you're probably really well set up but you can also just not straight up turn your back and run unless you're yeah. like, you have to set that up because chase instinct kicks in maybe that person is was released from the cfl and they're now you know they're having issues now i'm just i'm just joking but there's basically what i'm saying <laughs> if he played for the cfl he probably is having issues <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what i'm saying basically is there is always going to be somebody that run faster that yeah. hits harder that you know so you have to assume that you're not the best at what you're doing yeah. chase instinct is very very dangerous so turning your back and running can be dangerous but it it also can be life-saving and even even more dangerous i guess if your little kids with you because they can't sprint the mm -hmm. same way that you can mm -hmm. if you leave them behind then that's way worse right so yeah. i i guess i guess there is a it's like do i appease them uh, that seems to be kind of the main goal is like let's appease them let's defuse de-escalate the situation and then we go from there yeah, we, I think we spoke about this on maybe the first podcast I was in with you guys, but we're talking about, you know, learn to talk to people. I mean, that's critical. That's a critical skill. It could get you a job. It could, it could get you people to follow you. It could get you a, a cheaper house. It could, it could help you in a self-defense scenario and de-escalation, de uh, verbal de-escalation is huge. And be, be conscious of your nonverbal and your verbal and how you're coming across. And if you're, if you're hitting trigger points and it's not going well, try something something else and, you know, be gentle and to a certain extent, obviously, until it's time to not be, but de-escalating if at all possible. And if you can do it with limited risk, I certainly, I certainly encourage it. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not everyone has the ability to, they're not so well-spoken that they have that. I just know from the restaurant industry, man, like a lot of people are just overly emotional. They, they don't deal with stress very well. How can people become better at de-escalating verbally. What kind of, what advice would you give someone who maybe isn't the strongest uh, personality for de-escalating? Maybe they're emotional or aggressive, you know, and then they come across a situation where someone's got a knife and, you know, they kind of freeze up or they immediately go on the offense. What are, what are some things that you think people can do to sort of improve their verbal de-escalation tactics? 
Yeah, I mean, now we're starting to get into, again, the, the sort of the physiology and psychology of combat, right? Where what happens to your body and where's the blood going to the major organ to prevent, you know, your, your extremities to bleed out and your heart rate increases. And if you reach a certain heart rate, you're losing some of your skills. And there's a variety of different things that happen. So we live in an emotional world where people are very, very quick to be emotional on one way or another. And it's actually a major detriment. We need to stop being like that. And some of the tactics that we can use is if time permits is having you know that diaphragmatic breathing or you know take what we refer to as tactical breathing which is basically four deep breath in you know you pull for four seconds keep it in for four seconds and release it for four seconds and you do three or four cycles so what you have done is you have effectively lowered your heart rate you've increased clarity you have sent blood back to areas where it's important that you have it and you now can sort of be more sort of well equipped to have a a less emotional conversation. You also have to understand that we live in a world where, especially in North America here, where everybody is posturing, right? The more you can sort of pump your chest up and, and beat on it like a gorilla, the more impressive you are to the other person, which is going to prevent conflict in theory physically physical conflict but the reality is it it is the case in certain times but if you're dealing with somebody that's either emotionally disturbed or high out of their mind yeah or high or under the under the influence or or divorced um just kidding but but so now it isn't going to work you're going to make things worse so you need to understand so perhaps and sometimes it could be tactical conversation too i am having this conversation right now and i pretending that we're best friends and trying to de-escalate so that I can wait for this person on the corner to see me so that I can wave or yell or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it may be a tactical decision to have that conversation, to elongate the amount of time or maybe to buy time so that I can formulate a plan and enact that plan. What that looks like, I mean, again, I don't want to, because now we're we're getting into the very, very specific scenarios, Mm -hmm. but it's all about controlling your emotion. The best way to do it is to have had that rehearsal before and here's the beauty and we've spoke about this on the last podcast the subconscious mind does not make the difference between reality and fiction but it also doesn't have a concept of time so those are very very powerful tools they're impediment to a certain extent but they're also powerful tools to rehearse on four degrees of of visualization as we i believe we discussed in the last podcast and to really send the the stimulus to your subconscious mind that, hey, this is happening. This is how I'm envisioning reacting. This is how I'm envisioning having the conversation. All this good stuff. Close your eyes. Pretend you you get the sense. You get the visual. You get the audio. You get everything involved in there and all as many as you, of your senses you possibly can. And then and then have that mental rehearsal. You can also you can also role play these scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you wanted to go to the extent of being truly proficient in this, you would have to role play him. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's very difficult, right? Yeah, Seb, Seb and I trained. We did uh we did some rounds before we recorded this podcast, and we were discussing how someone who is super conditioned physically, uh, who you know is just a freak athlete, might go into a jujitsu competition and you know, experience the adrenaline dump and the nerves all of a sudden 
even though you're physically conditioned, your conditioning's off the charts, but you're not mentally conditioned for that type of level of stress. And so what happens is you gas out in a few minutes because you can't control that adrenaline. And this was something that I wanted to discuss on this podcast. It's something that we discussed with Travis Stevens. And you kind of just mentioned, you know, the visualization of it. Travis was talking about how, yes, visualize your lungs burning, visualize the feeling of you know, your throat burning and, and you know, what do your hands feel like when there's tape on them? What do the mats feel like with and sort of involve all of your senses and visualize the discomfort of the situation. And that way you can sort of bring yourself almost to a trigger where you're there. And that way you can have, you know, because you're there next time you're in that situation for real you're going to be more accustomed to it. And I've actually used this practice. I'm, I'm preparing for a competition right now and I'm using this practice. I'm doing more visualization, including all of my senses, as opposed to visualizing like, okay, I'm going to pass as guard then I'm going to do this, or I'm going to win. You know, it's not like that. It's more like visualizing the, uh, the discomfort and what the senses actually detect in the situation. And I'm wondering when you're in de-escalation or even just on the job going to a call, this is something that you guys use in these high stress situations where you are imagining, okay, I know that when when we do this, my heart's going to be pounding out of my chest. Like, let's go to that situation. Let's get to that. And essentially what you're doing is you're training your stress inoculation. Are you not? Yeah, we are, but um, it, it's a little bit different. I mean, you're absolutely right. You said you know a lot of good stuff there that I think that would be remiss if we if we kind of skim over. For one, just to clarify, so the, the the piece about the physical fitness and correlating to the ability to produce on the mats, I think it's important to understand that there is a hormonal change, and that hormonal change actually makes a 200 heart rate way worse when it's hormonally driven than a 200 heart rate exercise induce. And that is one of the biggest key components. So a lot of people will say, you know what, well, this guy must have not been as fit as he, as he is claimed to be because he gassed out. No, his mind wasn't in the right place and it created an, a hormonal dump. And that is why his accelerated heart rate, which would have been consistent with what he reaches when he's in training actually caused more of an impediment. So now when I was in Thailand, for example, training at some of the Tiger uh, Tiger Muay Thai, you would go to a Muay Thai card and they would have one of the opponent falling out of the card because somehow he was sick or whatever the case may be. So they would go outside and get a cab driver to come in and fight on that card. And of course, the Thais started training when they were four and they did it, you know, most of them have like hundreds of fights by the time they hit whatever, 30, right? So now what would happen is you would take, it was the opposite. You would take somebody that's completely not conditioned or out of condition and they would come in and be able to to fight two or three rounds, no problem. Why? Because for them, it was like reading a book. Like there was zero stress in a hormonal dump. So now you had somebody that's not nearly as good a physical condition that produced a lot better result. So this doesn't mean you should be out of shape being in shape has benefits all day and we can do another episode on this but if your mind is right and you are in shape you are truly in the best place Mm -hmm. so as far as we are concerned i would speak to purpose and i can only speak for myself and you know my guys that i knew very very well it simply set your mind to something that's bigger than you right you have the ability to accept the worst outcome which is death Right. So for us and for me, it was all about once you've accepted that and you have moved 
past that. And this is, doesn't mean like to be a cowboy and to take unnecessary risk and all this stuff. Now we did everything to risk mitigate and obviously be as safe as we possibly could. But ultimately, if you were going to have a field day on trying to kill me, let's go. Like I had made that, you know, I was good to go. So if you accept that, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Like mm-hmm. you've already taken everything else out of the equation. Then you focus on the process. As you mentioned, Matt, you're focusing on the process and what should I be doing and what should I, what am I feeling and all these other things. For us, it was about where is our breach point? Where are angles covered? Who's doing what? When is this happening in the sequence of event? What is the flow? Who's controlling what? Where's the suspect? clear your corner, you know, all these things. So it wasn't about like, oh my God, there's, you know, a dangerous suspect in there and we're going to get him. Couldn't care less. Yeah, yeah, they're all dangerous. Now, how are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. You know, type deal. So it was a very different thing because you couldn't possibly be stacked at the door with 198 heart rate and be any useful. And that's why I think, uh, I mean, I would never force any of my students to do competition, but the the difference between competition jujitsu and gym jujitsu is so different because, and it's not even like, it's weird. Like no one gives a fuck whether you win or lose. It's just like there we're on a stage now. There's this lead up to this. You put time into this for whatever reason. Like you said, there's a hormonal change. You know, you could go to the gym and maybe if you're a beginner for the first few months, you know, you come to class and you're scared as scared as shit. But then eventually you become conditioned to it when you go into your first competition or even years later. I still get nervous when I compete. You know, you feel sometimes fatigued even before you step on the mat. If you can't mentally overcome the preparation for the task that's about to happen. It's so different from doing a hard workout and feeling as exhausted. It's a mental battle where, you know, you can't control your adrenaline. And I think the, the best competitors are masters at controlling this. So that's why I always recommend that everyone do at least one competition so they can at least, uh, you know, even if they don't want to, if winning gold medals isn't their goal, which, you know, very few practitioners actually have that goal. At least they understand that feeling where they're like, okay, this is where I'm going against someone who's actually trying to beat me. It's not my friend that I see weekly. That is my training partner. This is someone who's like, this matters to them. And now it's a new level of stress. And I think that that is something that if more, if more people experience that struggle and they realized, okay, like I can push my body to these limits. I can push my mind to these limits and I can overcome these things. You know, I think a lot more people would be kind of in control of their emotions, especially, you know, whether it's a, you walking home and someone ambushes you or a police officer on duty who who has to make a split second decision and and they're under a tremendous stress. So I, I think that as, when we're talking stress inoculation training, the fact that you can go to, to a place and do jujitsu and have people sparring with you 100 percent or going going to a competition even more so, that's where you can really benefit. It's kind of like uh, I remember uh, Shintaro Higashi, one of the questions was, is judo good for self-defense? And he brought up a really interesting point that was, yes, obviously, it's good to know to have any training. But one thing that judo has that, let's say, boxing or kickboxing doesn't have is when you're sparring, you can spar 100%. You're going to get 100% resistance. Whereas if you're going boxing and you're going 100% all the time, People are going to get very hurt. Your longevity in the sport is no long, nowhere near as, as big as when you are going in a grappling situation. So I didn't even consider that. And I was thinking like, yeah, I guess when you're in jujitsu, like you can spar a hundred percent 
a lot of the time and both come away unscathed and be able to do it the next day. And I think that that like that relationship that you have with your training partners where you're literally trying to take each other's head off and that stress level that you can take it that really matters in a self-defense situation. Whereas if you're doing like even MMA, you know, you can't be throwing haymakers every time. You're just going to be knocking each other out and breaking your hands and doing things like that. So let me just say that I think MMA is probably the best self-defense training, but the full on the fact that you can go hundred percent in grappling arts really can boost up your stress inoculation training. And I think that's where it's very effective, not just technically on the floor, but the fact that you can push your your mental capacity to that level. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are ways to to do that with other things like you can do it in working out. And there is some very strong correlation that are made between actually, if you look at um, performing a task under time in front of your peers increases the stress to a level that's unfathomable, that's very, very difficult to replicate. So you can do it on other ways that, you know, would be correlated to fighting, but wouldn't actually be fighting. So if you're doing it at the gym, you're doing it in the gym, you're doing it on the mats, you're doing it out when you're out for a run, you're doing like you're starting to build this sort of resilience, you know, this combat resilience that's actually critical for for competitors with that. Just think of it this way. Imagine the difference between, say, rolling on the mats in a friendly sort of training environment and going to a, a tournament where people are actually actively seeking to win. And imagine taking that a step further and the person that wins lives you know, type deal. So now you're, you're on a street scenario. So imagine the, the hormonal fluctuation that you're experiencing in light of the consequences that you are currently facing. And imagine these consequences be 10 times worse. The adrenaline dump or the hormonal, cause it's just not adrenaline. There's other hormones involved in there. So I just don't want to make it like oversimplified, but actually what I'm saying is if you are fighting for your life, you are going to hit that wall way faster than you will in a tournament, which is way faster than you will on the mats. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's some, there's some critical pieces there. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I did want to discuss home defense. So just from someone who's totally ignorant, I don't own firearms yet. I would like to own firearms one day. What would you recommend that someone can do, like, what are some precautions you can take for, you know, maybe preparing for a burglar or someone breaks into your house or whatever you have, let's say wife and two kids or something like that. And again, like, it's going to depend on the layout of your house, you know, where you live. We, we all know that, but like, generally speaking, what are some, what are some things that you would recommend? Well, it, it would start long before somebody breaks in, right? So, so what sort of security do I have around my residence and what kind of precautions have I taken and do I have cameras and do I have deterrent and do I have a, you know, guard dog sign or do I have an actual guard dog or do I have, you know, what kind of locks I have on my doors and, and, and those types of things. Do I, you know, sleep with my doors unlocked or do I sleep with my windows open and do I have, do I have cages in there if I do and what, you know. Like, what do you mean? Like a panic room? No, no, no. Like, um, you know, having bars in your windows. Oh, okay, okay. So some people do like in my gym, in my first gym, my garage gym, which was beautiful and filled with equipment. I had uh, bars right in, in, in the windows. So think of it this way. Unless you have something that's known, that's very specific to your residence, you can harden the target enough to make it extremely unappealing. And that is, you know, a reality. The people and the, the property crime people and the people that have no real bones with the occupants that just want in to get a TV and whatever the case may be, some money, some jewelry, they are going to target 
the place that they're most likely to be successful without getting caught, right? And if that place looks like a fortress and not by, you know, in a very sense of the words, but if, if it actually, there, there is cameras and there is, and clearly the people inside have made overt attempt at being cautious. It's a very risky endeavor for that person. You are likely to see that person target the neighbor's house. And I apologize for the neighbor, but you just need to be more switched on. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is what it is, right? So knowing that you have your family in there, knowing that very, very precious lives are in there, like how much have you spent and how much time have you spent researching the best way to make your place as safe as it possibly can be? Mm-hmm. So that's where it starts. Because anything else is, again, we're playing catch up. Now, we've taken this out of the equation. For whatever reason, uh, you know, we are going to be the target or somebody coming in a home invasion of, you know, a horrible scenario like this. And, and they do occur and they do occur randomly at times. So now the question becomes, do we have a plan? And what is that plan entails? Right. So, you know, the debate about firearms and there's really no debate. I mean, I'm not going to take one position, the other, obviously being in the line of work I'm in, I'm not going to sit here and say violence is never the answer or firearms are never, should never be used to protect. You know, obviously I, I, I can't do that. At the same time, I certainly wouldn't encourage somebody to say, obtain a firearm, become proficient with it, which is one piece of the pie, like you need to be proficient with it, but also to go seek and destroy somebody that's stealing your TV down there, right? So there has to be, there has to be a balance there. I'll give you a scenario, an example, Matt. So say, for example, we hear somebody break in the house. My entire family is on the third floor. Now you hear somebody downstairs, there is a possibility you may do, you may do a little sort of peek around the corner or try to get a, a visual because do you have a bear in there? Who knows, right? But if somebody's in there and clearly they're rummaging through things and they're looking through jewelry or whatever, call 911, get your family. If the best way to not disturb anything, not attract attention is to leave him there, be prepared to respond if the person comes upstairs. But call 911, don't say a word, leave the, the phone sort of the line open. You will get somebody to your place faster than anything else. It, so say that again. If you call 911 and don't say a word, mm-hmm. that could be more effective than trying to explain what's going on. Yeah. Well, for one, you're going to compromise. You're likely to compromise your position. You're likely to give yourself away. If but you're if speaking. You, yes. Yeah. So if you have, a, I believe, um, an open an open 911, so a 911 call and background noise can be heard or whatever, but you're actually not saying anything, cars will be dispatched and it will be considered, uh, you know... That's very valuable to know. It will be it will be considered a, a, an emergency, and it's not to, uh, evidently it's not to be played with because it is very serious. But uh, but it, but yes, if you have a chance to explain what's going on, then by all means go ahead, right? Because you have to think like if I've provided more details and something happens, they also be able to resolve what happens. Versus if I don't provide any details, then now it's like a basically start from scratch. What are we looking at? Right. So there's pros and cons, but it's all about if I'm if I'm about to compromise myself by speaking, I won't. But then my family, you know, do we have a plan? Have we discussed it? If the risk of compromise by moving is too great, maybe I I leave my girl in, in her room and I live I leave my wife there and it's like status quo until we get some help. Right. And if I have firearms, as a reason of being like a, a legal firearm owner and whatever, then maybe this becomes my sort of last line of, of resort. But I'm certainly not going to go clear the house downstairs to shoo somebody out that's 
actually looking at my TV or in my jewelry drawer. Right. You'd rather stay with your family. Absolutely. Because you, A, you don't know who else is in there with them while you're yeah. being, while you're interacting with someone or you're having any sort of interaction, who is sneaking up into your girl's room or whatever the case is. So stay with your family, protect that third floor, you know, with your life and, and have a plan. But I think in the movies, what you see often is people start clearing the house and how am I going to clear my house and, you know, to get the person out of my house and all this good stuff. Really? No. So you think you think it's important to have like a family meeting. Okay, this is something that can happen. You know, if 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 someone breaks in, blah blah. blah. What what would you recommend? Should they all come to mom and dad's room? If they can. If they wake up, they come into mom and dad's room. Like they might not even wake up. They might be asleep and you know you're the only one who notices something. You wake your wife up or whatever. There's I think there's someone downstairs, you know, I, I, would you try to sneak into their room and gather them? It all depends. Yeah. Depends it, on the layout of the house. It, as it well. all depends. Are they moving closer? Do I have the feeling that they're coming here next? Like, I don't know. I, I don't even want to answer that. Like for me, it would have to be again, a game, t- a game time decision. But what would be known is where are we going or how is that going to work? And so, for example, I'll use my situation. So with my job and being, you know, dealing with super high profile and high level criminals that I was dealing with when I was on the team, there was concerns at some point that some of the operation were involved in that perhaps the threat would be coming to my doorstep. It would have been a really bad idea, but it still was present, right? So one of the things that I did with my ex-wife was having these conversations and we would say, she was a, a police officer too. So I would say, if this happens, you're going to strap your, your vest on, bulletproof vest or body armor rather, because it's not truly bulletproof, but, and then, and then you are going to go take the girls, sit in the closet you're going to create an angle on that closet. You're barricading the door and that's how you're doing it. You're going to grab a chair. You're going to prop it up under the, um, the doorknob and you're going to do all of this. You're going to do a 911 open line and you are going to wait. If somebody should somebody cross the threshold off that door, you are going to be prepared basically to make a final stand if needed, if you're, if your life is threatened, which in that case, you know, likely you would be uh, justified to do so. So what you are doing is you're actually taking all reasonable, reasonable actions to prevent seeking problems. Like you're obviously protecting your family, which you're a hundred percent entitled to do. And then you can do it in a way that you're setting us a line in the sand. And if that line, should that line be crossed, you are prepared for what you're going to do next, which is, potentially, you know, deploying your pistol or whatever the case is. But at no point in there, unless the kids were at risk, we were going to risk anybody's lives over physical property. Like this is an ego thing that will get you nowhere. Mm -hmm. You're going to go down and track some crackhead that came through your house that's rummaging through your jewelry drawer or unhooking your flat screen TV that costs like 300 bucks at Costco. And now you're going to end up in a deadly shooting because of that. And then you'll say, well, they came to my house. I felt threatened. And there is some truth to that, but it's a fine line, right? How the ends many, don't justify the means. It's just like, could you have avoided that? And you may come out yeah. unscathed in the end, but how long is that going to take? Three years, four years? Like, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, and again, it's we can go on all day, but having a plan and some contingency with respect to that plan is way better. Preemptively preparing your house for somebody to not be interested in breaking in because it's a hardened target is the best way to proceed. And then we go from there.
But what are the all the other steps that weren't done? Right. And that's what bugs me. It's kind of like these debates about self-defense or these debates about firearm ownerships or all these other things. It's like what was all done prior to this so that you wouldn't even get there. And, and, and often the answer is none. There was no research. There was no, no attempt at hardening the target the way it should. And really, there is no reason why your house was a target in the first place. There's also, it ties into other things. I had an aunt. What she used to do is to show up to um, the hairdresser and brag about how much money she had and her husband. And you no, know, she did. And she was a very nice lady, but she just loves to show her bling and she just loved to talk about how much money she had and you know, when, when her husband was gone on a vacation and all these other things. What happened actually is one day her husband was gone on a trip and she had made it very vocal, like she'd verbalized that and everybody knew. And somebody came over to the house, knocked on the door. She opened the house. She didn't have a people or anything to look out. She opens the door and the guy says something along the lines of, I've waited for a long time for this and shoots her seven times with a 357 Magnum and dumps her body like in the hallway, goes and steals all her jewelry and the money and walks away. Believe it or not, this is a true story. She survived. She did. Like it took her like five years to walk and all this stuff. It is an absolutely incredible story of survival in terms of having been shot so many times with that kind of caliber. So the predicament that she actually found herself in, again, people are going to say, well, you know, is she to blame for this? Like, you know, evidently she's not like, we shouldn't have to worry about this, but we have to. So yeah. when you're going outside and you're talking and you're letting others know where you are, you're updating your social media and you're doing all these other things, you may be endangering your family. So when I was on the team, there was no like, oh, I'm on a course in Ottawa or no, I'm deployed somewhere up north. And because I knew like, any smart criminal that we dealt with would never come after me personally, but that's not to say you wouldn't go after my girls, mm -hmm. you know? So, so all those things matter. Yeah. Keep your family safe. Seb, tell us exactly where you live and where you keep your guns. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, great conversation. I got a lot out of this. I guess I had a few, just a few quick questions to finish up kind of unrelated to what we're talking about. I don't know if I've asked you, what are you, do you have any fears you know, someone who's been in martial arts for a long time, been in law enforcement for a long time. What is Sebastian Lavois afraid of? I don't know. Like, I would say death certainly isn't one of them. Um, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. If you fear death. No, uh, no, that's a wrap a long time ago. I, I do not. I suppose having sort of dedicated my life to the collective the way I have, one of my greatest fear has always been to come up short and for somebody to pay for that. And this could be, this could be in a form of me not being prepared enough for doing, dealing with something and, and missing an opportunity. Or it could have been for me to make the wrong decision. Say I find myself faced with what I perceive to be a threat and it isn't, or I'm doing a hostage rescue, which I, you know, I've been involved in four, four of them as a, three of them as an assaulter, one of them as a team leader and having an outcome that's less than desirable with the person that I'm attempting to save. And I mean, it is absolutely incredible the complexities of of dealing with with say something like a hostage situation and when we send these people in the house for them to even be successful they're so far behind it is incredible that we even take that risk but for me i know myself personally say had i made the wrong decision in the context of say a one-on-one -on -one risk assessment and i believe i'm 
my life is threatened and I do what I what is right at the time based on the totality of the circumstances, but it ends up being the wrong call, it would have been extremely, extremely damaging for me. Uh, you know, potentially unrecoverable. Are you trying to say if you lose one of your men and it's your fault? Oh, yeah. That's your biggest fear? That's one of them. I mean, exactly. I mean, just having made made a critical decision and having made it wrong and somebody pays for it. Mm -hmm. Let's say you can go to dinner with anybody in history, living or dead. Who would it be? Can it be fictitious? Like, can it be, can it be, you know, like, well, a, I mean, I, I, not Homer Simpson, <laughs> no, no, but no. like a real person. Well, it, it's arguable. Like was Leonidas, like was Achilles. Like we, you know, there's a lot of well, it's Greek mythology, right? <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I, it's grounded I, in some I, truth. I think Achilles is a, a valid choice. Yeah. I mean, how about this? I'll give you a couple. Okay. Can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give me, give me three or five or something. Like that. <laughs> I'll give you 42. Hold on. Leonidas, uh, Achilles would definitely be to, if they were as depicted, uh, would have been absolutely amazing. Bruce Lee would definitely, definitely be one of them. I would say there's so many people. I, I feel like if I qualified them by, you know, like, cause there's writers and historians and there's no wrong answer. This is going to sound kind of corny, but Jocko would be someone I'd love to meet. You probably could have dinner with Jocko. <laughs> If you guys are sending emails to Jocko, maybe Maybe we should. I haven't actually reached out to Jocko, but uh, that would be actually quite fitting. It's kind of interesting because a bunch of people have. So some of the members uh, sent me like CC'd me on some emails that they sent to Jocko. They said, we need to get you two in the same room. And I'm not even seeing myself in the same galaxy, you know, but um, but I would certainly Jocko would be would be somebody I would love to meet. Hickson Gracie would be something too. Good I mean, I have some, there's some reservations there, like he, you know, but I think he's just, I don't know, he, he maybe, maybe he's, you know, kind of getting old and being sick and tired of just people's bullshit. And, but I would love to kind of pick his brain. Um, Hickson over Helio, eh? I would probably pick Hickson over Helio. Yeah. Yeah, I probably would. Let's say there's a fire at your house. Yeah. Family is completely safe, but you can save one possession. What is it? My cell phone. Really? <laughs> Dude, listen, I got to qualify this. I'm divorced. I lost my car, lost my, <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing left. So my pictures are all saved on my phone. I do have some photo album, but I can reprint those. So yeah. those are out of the equation. Like, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would have taken your, you would have taken your, uh, your photo albums out. It's um, funny that that question, as I get older, and especially after I, I have had kids, I'm I've realized I'm very much not materialistic anymore mm-hmm. and my material goods don't mean anything <laughs> to me really. Yeah. Like I think I think I would say my car because it's literally worth the most, but like other than that, I mean, I got like a ring that I really care about because it's a family ring, but other than that, I mean, I, I don't really give a fuck about my material goods anymore now that I have kids. It's like there's other things that I care about, you know. I'd be pissed if my gym burnt down. Oh yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> but that's your subsistence, right? Like that's your. Yeah. But you know, interesting because the first thing that probably comes to mind for me is um, is I now live in a basement. I have people living upstairs. They have kids. All this good stuff. Oftentimes, you know, one of them is not home or whatever, so there's only one there. I would likely breach the door in between the two and see if anybody else is in trouble long before I even think about anything physical. You know, like yeah, I absolutely echo what you said about physical possessions 
they are a frivolous kind of um, surplus and they are not needed nor required and I have zero attachment to them at all. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't. Yeah, cool. I did have one other question and that's really how many times have you been like, I'm going to die right now. I think I'm. this is it. Has that been a lot of times? Yeah, it has. And actually it happened, it happened a lot. And without getting into the complexities of certain situations that I was involved with, there comes a time where the priorities of life are such that we come second or third, right? So if we make a decision that somebody say inside a stronghold is with bad guy or by themselves and potentially bleeding out or potentially hurt or in grave danger, there is a time where we become less important. And when that happens and you know that the wind conditions are unfavorable for us, we are going to be at grave danger and you accept that. But I can tell you a quick sort of story where my team and I were involved in a call where a former Vietnam vet who was a prop master had a house that was booby trapped. And there, there were a variety of saw-like gruesome traps on that residence. And there were pressure, pressure switches on the staircase that were potentially attached to small charges, you know, so as you release your foot off the thing, it goes bang. And now you're, you get a stump instead of a foot. Uh, there were, there was a crossbow on the people. There was some pressure switches under the welcome mat. There were stuff attached to the uh, propane tanks of the barbecue with like flame throwing abilities and like all this. Holy stuff. fuck. And it was so, so we go to do a sweep of the residence and we go around to do a sweep of the residence. And I'll, I'll provide a little more detail in a minute. This is all resolved. It's all taken care of. It's years ago. But then one of my guys is about to take another step and I grab his, his vest and I'm like, hold. We look down and the, in the weeds is like a mat of nails, hollow, like hollowed out nails. So if they go through your foot or whatever, you're bleeding through, like they're not plugging the injury. Not that you're going to bleed out from nails under your foot, but you know what I'm saying? So by being hollow, they would actually allow the blood to flow, which is dangerous, right? And, and aside from the obvious, which is having a bunch of nails. And then what if you, plant your foot on there and it, all the nails are coming through your foot. And now you're falling forward and now, you know, potentially even have that in your face or whatever. It didn't fall on there. So it would have been like very, very ugly. It was kind of a really a Vietnam era booby trap. I assume you'd be wearing steel bottom shoes though, no? You, you have to think like, I may, you may have to be in a foot chase. You may have to like, there's other things you can't be in a, you know, in a completely enclosed things like you have to have mobility, you have to be swift and nimble. And so, so yeah, I mean, potentially with, as technology evolves, maybe we'll have that. But anyways, long story short, the, the understanding was that he had hurt her and that she was potentially left inside the house bleeding. So now there was a decision that was made from command that we actually had to go in as a team to rescue her. But we knew the entire place was fully booby trapped. How did you know that? What well, we did, because we had, had intel. Ins- we, we had intel, but we also inspected. So 
Intel came in first. He basically had said, like, look, good luck with my house. He told you? Oh, yeah. Like, Did not, you, not us. Not but us. he is he in the house with the no, girl? No, he's not. You already captured him? No, he's not. He's, okay. he's away. He's captured, but he's away in a, in a central location somewhere downtown. And he's providing the information that he had hurt her, that she is, you know, that that's what he has done, that he has, that his house is booby-trapped. So he's being cooperative, so to speak. But we, obviously, we don't take his, his words for gospel, but we start inspecting the various things that he's given us and we're confirming that those are accurate so now we're dealing with a prospect where we have a heavily booby-trapped house and i'm going to be number one in the door i'm not going to go through the door obviously we've created another entry point and we've done all due diligence and all this stuff but now i'm going to be the first one going in i'm number one through the door and so be it whatever happens happens right I'm not making it justice now, but I mean, in the totality of the circumstances and based on what we have discovered already, I was 100% convinced I was going to blow up. You're the first guy in. Yeah, I was 100% convinced, like, we are going to blow up. And then we get in the house, there were, like, little creepy things, like little... Did it look like a a horror house? Oh, yeah, it looked like Saw. It looked like Saw in there. It was a funny story, though. Uh, and this is a true story. You, you, Funny because you didn't blow up. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> but uh, so what happens? And she wasn't in there. So it was like she wasn't in there. Ultimately, So he tried to kind of that's right. get you guys hurt. That's right. But he wasn't in. But she wasn't in there and we didn't trigger anything. So what happens is we secure the scene and we get the uh, explosive team to come in to kind of have a look at some of the setup. Because there was like big panels with all kinds of things connected. Shotgun like connected at the bottom of the staircase and all this stuff. Holy fuck. So anyways, what happens is the... The EDU, the um, explosive guys are kind of dealing with this and they're like sweating bullets because they're in their suits and they're nervous because there's stuff everywhere and they're very, they're good. They're professionals. But anyways, so they're dealing with all these wires and everything. And I grab a, a bag from the closet and I put air in it and I turn over to my buddy and I'm like, you know, I, I shake my head like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> like a paper bag. Yeah, right, it wasn't paper, but something you clapped else. It He's like, it? no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so. that's like a, sorry to get you off track. Cause this is like a yeah. riveting story, but like, I guess in your line of work, that gallows humor kind of keeps you guys Dude, sane, right? Dark humor. I mean, and, and it's really, really hard to explain to people, but when you're operating under those kinds of conditions, you have no choice. Like it, it just, you have to, to make light of things not when it's critical obviously you do things but it's just you know oh man i there's so many good stories like i i had some quentin tarantino moment where we're like literally four guys sitting in a in an armored car and we're all tacked up all dressed to the gills and we're waiting for this russian crew to do a hit on a bank and this is years ago like none of that none of, none of this is hold back they, they've long gone and whatever but uh th- you know the alleged thing is that they're coming in to do uh, a takeover style armed robbery like in heat or something and so now we're placed on standby it's like december 24th we're behind it's in, christmas eve yeah we're in the alley basically sitting there in full gear balaclavas on the whole bit and all of a sudden it's like it's it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> and, and these giant snowflakes are coming down. And I'm like, man, we are going to get in the worst shootout ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. And all you can do is laugh, I guess, right? It's To me, it, it struck me as a Quentin Tarantino, you know, setup, right? Like yeah. we are going to... Anyway, and it was just... 
but it's just you laugh. We just all kill ourselves laughing for a second, and then we're like, okay, good to go, you know, type deal. But tell me more about this saw house. Like, I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering, because when you when you describe a house, I got videos, so uh, not videos, but uh, pictures, and that's why I can I can always uh, show you that. But, oh, cool. Uh, well, like 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 when when you have to go into this house mm-hmm. and you know there's booby traps, mm-hmm. like how do you not trigger anything? Well, it's just a matter of being very slow and deliberate, right? And we have ways, we have ways to obviously be searching for certain things. And I, you know, I won't be getting into that, but also even visually taking your time is of the occasion, despite that we, the information was a potentially somebody was in there. You know, you have to, you have to weigh how many of us are we losing before we get to her type deal. So it's just a matter of striking that right balance between how much time do we have and what is a, what is a possible outcome and how likely is it that she is in? Right. Because yeah. that was also to be taken into consideration. If there was a blood trail leading somewhere when, you know, when we entered, we would have sped up. Yeah. Quite a bit. And at the risk of losing one of us so that somebody could get to her. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you lose one, it's one thing. If you lose the entire team, then you have four families affected or six or five or whatever the case is. Yeah. So you'd say that was your that no. was your like darkest moment. Like well, it wasn't really dark. It was just more like I am dead. Yeah. You know, like I, I wasn't like overly emotional about it, but I did send a text to my to my wife say, I love you. And she's like, you've never sent anything to me uh, during a call. I'm like, yeah, this was uh, pretty sketchy. But there were others like where, you know, you had somebody that's been in multiple gunfights with law enforcement who's now in a residence with an AK-47 and the doors left open and he has trenches on his property. And we've searched the entire property and now we know he's inside. And then there's there's some information that come to light that forces us to enter this place and again i'm number one through what you know or, or number one or number two through and 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 we know for a fact based on uh, empirical evidence that that person has been in multiple gunfights with police and everything so you know like i'll be crossing the threshold and a volley of ak-47 rounds are going to come right through me and and the boys are, are going to do what they do after but uh you just have to you just have to kind of make peace with that. But yeah, I've had that quite a few times. I feel like we need to do an episode just like stories with Seb. Please tell, tell me more bedtime stories of breaching saw-like residents. Wow, that was cool. Yeah, really don't know what to say. I'm so happy with how it turned out. Is there anything you want to... No, man. I'm, I'm For as long as anybody wants to hear back, I'm totally good. So yeah. Me. Well, uh, that was great. Again, Seb, thanks for coming out on the podcast. Definitely. I mean, I could just just have you here all all the time. (laughs) And uh, it's been a pleasure. Again, I want to just thank the Patreon supporters. Um, You guys donating to the show really uh, motivates us and keeps the lights on. You know, it's it's an honor to be able to provide you guys with not just jujitsu instructional, but cool cool war stories from a legend like Seb. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, that is the best way you can support the show. You can go to www.patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. If you want to buy cool hoodies, patches, shirts, you can always go to our store, which is on our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. And again, big thanks to Seb for this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anything else, bud? Thanks for the roll, bro. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you very much, you guys. Appreciate that. 